I'd like to thank also the praise team. Um, two weeks ago, John Paul uh, was getting ready for this Sunday, and he looked at the text and just kind of asked me in small group and said, you got anything for me, like any song requests? And I said, no, it's a dark passage. I, don't, I have no idea what to tell you to sing on the morning that we're going to go over uh, chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes. And so many of the songs that he picked were the types of songs that you would hear any more now sung and chosen for a funeral service or a memorial service, where the, the entire songs took us through the entirety of Jesus' life from birth to resurrection or the entirety of our lives and how we want to serve God faithfully in the morning, but then we also want to be faithful to him in trials and we want to be faithful to him even in death. And so you chose incredibly well, John Paul, uh, to match uh, the tone of this passage. But we're in Ecclesiastes. It is itself a sermon, and the preacher has a pretty blunt message to people. He started it off in chapter one by saying, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. And the, the remaining chapters just kind of unpack that message. And so there's a somber tone to it. There's a bit of a critical tone to it where he looks at various things in the world with his eyes wide open to all of the ugliness and the reality of the world as we experience it. And he's honest about all of it. It's what makes Ecclesiastes for so many of us, whether we have ever read the Bible growing up or not, this is especially a book that someone would read and say, this doesn't feel like it was written thousands of years ago. I mean, this feels like it could have been written yesterday by anyone walking through the streets of Aleppo. They could have written something like this in trying to process the world as we experience it. So we're going to begin in verse 1 and then continue in chapter 7 until verse 14. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honors so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. 
The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So there we'll conclude our reading for today. Titled this message, The Gift of Grief. Most of us won't think about grief as a good thing or consider it a gift, but it is where most of the rhetorical questions of chapter 6 find an answer in chapter 7 in the statement that it is a good thing to go to the house of mourning. And it is a good thing and a gift of God to us to have the capacity to grieve. But to get there, the first thing that the preacher says is that we have to choose to see. In verse 1, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun. We left off in chapter 5 with him talking about how if we have the time and the capacity to enjoy the good gifts God has given us, then we should enjoy them. We should eat and drink and experience the fellowship of community and the ways that God has given us because we don't know how long that we're going to have them, and so we should make the most of them. We should enjoy everything God has given us to enjoy. But we could mishear him in saying that to then encourage us to ignore the painful realities that are there. And so to enjoy the good gifts God has given us, to eat, drink, and be merry means to shut our eyes to the very real struggles that exist on a regular basis for the majority of human beings. But he does not do that. He is able to say in chapter 5, whatever you're able to enjoy, to the extent that you're able to enjoy them, enjoy them. And know that God wants you to enjoy them. But he's still choosing to keep his eyes open. And so he says, and so what I also see is that some people don't ever do enjoy what they have. And that seems especially sad. We don't know how long we can enjoy what we have, and so we should enjoy it. But with my eyes wide open, I'm, I'm still thinking about some who never take the time to enjoy the good things that God has given them. And so whether it's they live 100 years or have 100 children or whatever they have, it's not a matter of how many things they have. But in their span of life, they don't create the margin of the capacity to ever enjoy whatever the blessings that are that come. He says that's sad because in that equation, it doesn't matter how many things you have. If in your soul, you can't be satisfied with the good that God has given you to experience. And he keeps his eyes wide open to that. He sees and he says it's something that weighs heavy on mankind. 
So all throughout the book, we've been saying he's not encouraging us to shut our eyes to any of the realities around us. He's choosing to see the world as it is under the sun, and he's encouraging us with him to see the world as it is. And some of the things we see should break our hearts. They should grieve us. They should weigh heavy on us. So he gives in the description of a child who never sees the light of day and talks about coming in darkness and going in darkness. He highlights the reality that there is a light that we do experience who've been born healthy, who live, who experience the world. There is a light that we experience that hurts. And you know this. If you went outside right now and tried to stare directly at the sun, it hurt. (laughs) The very thing that gives us the capacity to see everything else is something that if we look directly into it and we don't have any barriers, any sunglasses or anything else, there is an aspect in which some of what we see hurts to look at. But he's saying, don't stop looking. The light of conscience that we have, the ability to reflect on our own lives and the choices of other people, the ability to think about events way in the past and anticipate things in the future, God has given us that capacity. It's one of the things that distinguishes us from other aspects of his creation, that we can think about things. We don't just experience them in raw emotion, but we can reflect on them. We can wonder and we can imagine about things that are there. Uh, I, was, I remember having a conversation with Luke Streeter, who's not here this morning because he's at an art show, and just him kind of reflecting about the, the most popular thing that he sells, that he paints, are, are portraits of cows. And it just surprises him that that's what people are interested in because he can paint all kinds of other things, but when he paints them, people don't buy them like they do his cows. It's like, I don't know why necessarily that's what people want to stare at. I said, well, there is something, though, that when you stare at one, you look at it and realize they don't stress out about anything, right? I don't care how many times a cow walks across a window in the barn. It never looks at itself and says, I wonder what I look like today. I've checked a mirror more times this morning than a cow ever will in the entirety of its existence. And you say, wait a minute, why with a greater capacity to reflect, think, and imagine, do we often take that in a direction where we're then critical of ourselves, insecure about ourselves? And so a cow never is worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. It just exists. It's just content with who it is and how it's made. And you and I can sit here right now and freak ourselves out about what we don't know is going to happen tomorrow or a week from now or a year from now. So wait a minute. So that, that is a, an amazing capacity that we have to be able to do that and think multiple thoughts and experience a realm of emotions. But man, on certain days, we might choose to not receive that because of where it leads us. And so there is a light of conscience that we have that hurts. There are things that we see that we wish we could go backwards and not see. But if we're going to keep our eyes open the whole time, we're going to see a variety of things. Uh, My last day in Serbia just a couple of weeks ago ended up being an 80-degree day. I taught my last class. I I really just needed a nap, but it was such a good day. It was 80 degrees. I said, you know what, I'm going to... I'm going to go down. There's a, the Danube River's there. I haven't gone and walked on it. Someone said there was a nice river walk, kind of picture maybe the size of the Mississippi River. And I'm like, I just want to go on a beautiful day and go for a walk. I wasn't expecting it all, though. When I got down there, there was actually a white sand beach there. 
It's like, oh, this is, I mean, this is like white sand, like the Carolinas or like Florida. And it's like, take my shoes off and just, I was not expecting to be able to walk barefoot in sand on a beautiful 80 degree day. So just experiencing it and enjoying it. And I said, okay, I want to take a picture for Amy so she can see what I'm seeing. And um, now I have like the panoramic feature on my camera, on my phone, right? So I'm taking a picture and trying to go like this so that she can see it. But it's hard to take a panoramic picture when there's also a bunch of 70-year-old men in Speedos on the beach. And I'm not trying to get them in the picture. So I have to like start and like, oh, wait, stop. Okay, hold on. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Go. Like there's, there's only part of this that I want her to see, not all of it. Now, sorry if you're a 70-year-old man in here. Don't be offended by that. If, if you're not an Olympic athlete and you're over the age of 16, it's just a bad idea. Um, for anyone, not, not just whether you're 70 years old or not. So I'm trying to get this, I mean, I end up getting a really, really cool panoramic picture. It's just the sense of like, isn't this cool? I mean, this is peaceful, this is restful, this is beauty. How could you doubt God's existence when you're just able to experience the beauty of something like this? However, when you walk to it, you also walk pretty close to a memorial that's been put up. Uh, in remembrance of one of the darkest events in World War II. We're on that same river, very, very large river, like I said, picture the Mississippi for most of you, where a number of families were forced onto that river in the middle of winter. 550, they say, uh, people of Jewish background and just under 300 people of a Serbian background forced onto the middle of the river, left, and then the ice of the river was shelled for all of them to be left to drown. And that's, that's the place that now, 80 degrees, everyone's enjoying the weather, enjoying the beauty of that ocean. And yet, at the same time, if you're willing to see and not ignore the world as it is and the suffering that exists, realize that it's also a watery grave. And actually, in the history over centuries, for many different times, for many different people. And you, you have to, in your own mind, not shut your eyes from that, but choose to see and choose to remember the full complexity of what is the human experience. And so some people, in choosing to do that, have put up a structure to say, we don't want people to forget what happened here. We want them to remember what happened what evil does really exist under the sun. And then when we choose to see that, like the preacher, we have to choose to grieve. (laughs) Grieving the reality of evil around us is the most natural thing to do. That's also what makes us human. I mean, you can imagine yourself trying trying not to sneeze when your body's trying to sneeze. How hard is that, right? Everything inside just has this, like, this is what I need to do. And if you fight against that, it's usually worse off than if you just do it. Same thing with coughing. And grief is a completely natural and human response to the universal experience of loss and pain that we have in this world. But although it's something universal, the experience of loss and pain, grieving is something that we almost have a sense of shame about when we really shouldn't when we choose to continue to see and what we see is dark and what we see is a grievous evil, it takes so much more work to shut off our emotions and our capacity to cry than to allow those emotions to overwhelm us, 
to turn the faucet on and just let the tears flow. But if you've experienced that, where you've allowed yourself to grieve, where you haven't resisted the temptation and and not been inhibited by any sense of shame or what will people think, but just responded in the fullness of your humanity to the struggle that you see, you are someone who can testify to the things that are described in chapter 7. That there is on the other side of the expression of that grief, he says, In one way, sorrow is better than laughter. By the sadness of face, the heart is made glad. There's a sense of release that you experience, almost like you experience even when you just go for a long run and eventually you've put your body through enough that it just releases within you uh, the chemicals that make you feel the sense of relief now. But it only comes after you've allowed yourself to grieve, after you've allowed the tears to flow and to really pour out your heart before God in tears and to cry. But then your body also responds to that in such a way that you feel a burden lifted, that you feel lighter afterwards. Whereas if you suppress it, if you keep it in and you refuse to ever allow yourself to do it, you add a weight upon your own heart that you were never meant to bear that no heart in this room is strong enough to take on the load of it, pain upon pain that is ungrieved. And so it is a gift that's just as much a part of our human capacity to imagine, to dream, to create, to play, to sing, to dance, to cry, to weep, which is what he had said back in chapter 3. That there is a time for everything. There is an appropriateness for everything. And where we're mixed up culturally is that we laugh at the things that we should cry about and we don't cry about the things that should really break our heart. But we should laugh and we should cry. We should enjoy the good gifts that God has given us and we should also grieve when we see that those things are not experienced but to suppress in our own minds and hearts what is just the most natural response to the evil and the pain that we experience is to stunt part of the growth that God desires for us, to experience part of the humanity that has made us different. Because also when you do look at a cow, it doesn't cry a whole lot at loss and change. And you want to say, I don't, I don't want to be indifferent to the reality of losing someone I love. I don't want to be indifferent to the separation that I experience. I don't want to be indifferent when there are legitimate anxieties that come into the heart, when there are actual diagnoses, when there's real disease, when there's real separation. I, I don't want to be the one that's just looking the same every single day in that moment. Part of the distinction of God making us as human beings in his image with the capacity to think and to process, to reflect, is to enjoy the things that he's given us and also to grieve the things that we wish we could enjoy but we haven't enjoyed. And so if we choose to see, we keep our eyes wide open, we have to then choose to grieve. It's simply not possible to do one without the other. And when we lose the capacity to grieve, what we then decide to do is go backwards and we choose not to see We choose to bury our head in the sand. 
We choose not to listen to the stories or the news reports about things that aren't going the way we want. And what we want to do and what we want to encourage is a resilient faith. For the person who says, well, I could just never imagine that God would allow this to happen. Anything you can imagine has happened. And so if you want to continue to put your head in the sand and just believe that no, if only God is there, then only good things will happen and only sunny days will come and only uh, the righteous will prosper. That's not the world we live in. If your eyes are wide open and you're not buried in the sand and you see the evil that's under the sun, you say, okay, wait a minute, I guess those options are just off the table. From birth, we didn't get to start with those options. We didn't get to start in paradise where everything went well and everyone got along and nothing bad happened. No, we inhabit a world that's not paradise, where there is suffering, where the suffering seems arbitrary at times, where we can't necessarily find the rhyme or the reason to why certain things happen. But here, the writer, the preacher is saying, with his eyes wide open to all of that, this book doesn't end in despair, but it it, it tries to do away with a childish faith that doesn't actually take account of the facts and the evidence as we experience them. Because in choosing to see and then choosing to grieve, the writer, the preacher, is also choosing to believe. I mean, look at what he says in in verse 1 of chapter 7. I mean, we'd almost expect to get there, man, this is so dark, this guy... I mean, yeah, we're seeing things we want to unsee. He's he's showing us what we'd rather not look at. So he could, if he was ending in despair in chapter 7, verse 1, say, see, so it's just not even worth it. Stop trying and just do whatever you want to do. But he doesn't. He says, in all of that, I'm still going to choose to believe that a good name is better than precious ointment. In other words, it's still appropriate to do what's right, to live a life of integrity, to do good to those that are around me so that seeing the evil around me does not become for me the reason to then go do evil to someone else. Because that's one of the responses. That's one of the temptations for us when we see it is to give into it or to replicate it. The very incident that I was telling you about that has a memorial on the Danube River, you can then read about the response to it within just a year or two of many, many more people who then lost their life as a result. And almost everyone who lost their life were not people involved in any decision-making between any of the nations at the time. So one of the ways we could respond is to pass it on, but that's, that's not what he encourages. He doesn't say, see, evil's winning, so just go ahead and do evil. No, he still chooses to believe that it is always right to do what's right. We might not get rewarded for it like we think. We might not get celebrated like in an ideal world, good would be rewarded, bad would be punished. That's not the world we live in. But he still says, choose to do what's good. Believe that a good name is better than precious ointment. Believe that if you have your eyes open and you consider the day of your death and you consider the frailty of your body, that one day, as we sang about, one day we will be alone. Every one of us will face the reality of our humanity in a way that is totally singular. We might be surrounded by people, they might be encouraging us, and they might be praying for us, but that is a valley everyone walks alone. 
And he's saying, but if you think about that, rather than causing you to despair in life, rather than causing you to give in to the evil that's around you, if you really consider that, there is a joy on the other side of that. There is a a gladness of spirit, a contentment in heart that we can experience when we consider all the facts and say, I'm gonna choose in believing that I'm gonna walk by faith and not by sight. And I'm gonna still live, though, yeah, there's all kinds of things we could be anxious about. There's all kinds of realities about tomorrow and a week from now and a year from now that are true, but rather than giving in to those anxieties, I'm gonna choose thinking about the ultimate end that all of us will go to, and I'm gonna seek wisdom. Even though through wisdom, that doesn't mean we can unpack all the puzzles of chapter six. No, they still remain puzzles. God doesn't give us his wisdom, but he does give us wisdom to live life in the moment that he's given it to us and to experience the goodness that he's given us in the moment that we've experienced it. But he also gives us the resilience of faith to keep our eyes open and to see the pain that's around us, to not ignore what we're going through or what other people are going to so that we can love him and love others the way we're really supposed to love them. But then you look at all this and you say, wow, okay, so if someone is gonna come into this world and they're gonna claim to be able to redeem this world, then that person is gonna have to choose to see. They have to deal with this world as it is. If if anyone's gonna show up and say, I'm gonna redeem it. And that person if they're good, when they look around, is going to have to have the capacity to grieve. And that person who comes and chooses to see and who chooses to grieve over what he sees also has to experience the pain and the darkness that we experience. And when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what they tell you. That the person Jesus came into this world, not ignorant of it, not with his head buried in the sand, with his eyes wide open to everything that was happening. In the small town that he was born in, the unjust king came back to it within two years and executed all of the male children two years and under in that town because he was born. That's what Matthew tells you within two chapters of his gospel. So he sees, he knows, he grieves, he laments over Jerusalem, he laments over the rebellion of his people that don't receive him and accept him. He experiences a loneliness of being betrayed by all of his closest followers, being put up on a cross and crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when all of his then followers after he was put into the tomb are still grieving and coming to his tomb because how awful things have been done to him, he shows them victory. He shows them what's on the other side of grief. And they come to an empty tomb. And it gives all of them this resilience that the world hadn't seen before. To say, no, no, no. He he saw it all. He grieved over it. He experienced it. He went on the cross. He went in the grave. 
but we've seen the other side. And so then his followers from that point out were people who went forward, resilient in their faith, strong, and not thrown off by what they've seen. Not walking around saying, well, don't you just know that God could never allow this to happen? No, no, no. But everything that God has allowed to happen also happened to his son. And his son rose victorious. And you can follow him. You can choose to believe in him. And he, through his spirit, can pour in you and in me a resilience of faith to go out into this world and to never choose to bury our head in the sand, to never choose to suppress our emotions, but to see it, to cry over it, and to not quit, to not give in, to believe that what happened on that Sunday in that empty tomb really does change everything. And it gives us what we need for whatever tomorrow means for you and for me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you. We thank you for making us in your image, giving us the capacity to wonder, to dream, to romanticize, to fantasize, to imagine and plan. We thank you that we've also been given the capacity to grieve, to cry, to experience suffering in a way that gives us compassion for other people. Father, we want to be people that do not give in to the darkness, that do not extend and pass on the darkness to other people. We want to be fully human before you, but we confess just a total mixture of emotions and thoughts that run through our heads. And so we need your grace. We need you to help us to see. We need you to give us the freedom that we need to cry. And we need you to give us the strength that we need to move forward, to believe, to trust that you are who you said you are. And that through your son, we can have confidence that there is another side to the story, that that death is not the end, that suffering is not the end, that the evil that we do see is not permanent, is not eternal. And so we pray that you would give us that type of faith that is strong in you for whatever life brings to us. In your name we pray, amen.